0: John chapter (laughs) 3, this is part 9 in our series, That You May Believe, our theme verse, John 20, verse 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name, amen, that's why John wrote these things, so we are looking at the gospel of John with the intention of Understanding that Jesus is who he, re- he said he was. He is the Christ. And if he is the anointed one, the Messiah, that should affect how we live our lives. Not just a, you know, I really want fire insurance. I don't like the thought of being burned up for eternity. So I'm going to believe in Jesus. That's what a lot of Christians do, isn't it? Well, are they Christians? We'll leave that up to God to decide. Saying if there's, if there's really something to this, if there's really something to the life of Christ, there should have a transforming power in your life. You should not live like the world. So you start as a baby. You've got to, and this is the passage we're going to get to. You start out as a baby, as an infant, and you grow up by the Holy Spirit's help into a mature man. So we're looking at the gospel of John with the intention of living like Christ Jesus. Doing what he did. As Jesus the boy here he was, he, he wrapped himself and became flesh, according to John 1. In the other gospel accounts, the Synoptic Gospels, we see in, in, when he was 12 years old, he revisited uh, into Jerusalem. And he was growing in stature and in favor with God and with men. And so we have this opportunity, as Holy Spirit-filled people, to grow up in favor with God. Jesus did, so should we. And so this is the, the point, um, just a reminder of the, the series of why we're looking at John We're going maybe a little bit faster than I did through Galatians and Ephesians, um, and perhaps a little bit different of a twist on it, trying my best to get some application and draw some things that we can see how we can follow after the steps of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It's living, it's active. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Speak to us that we would receive from you your words, Father, that we would become like your vessels, your carriers of your presence and look like your Son Christ Jesus to the world. That we would be that light, that hope shining in the dark world around us. We bless you. We thank you for your Son and the example that he was for us and the life that we have, the abundant life that we have in his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at Nicodemus, the conversation starting in John chapter 3, Jesus had with Nicodemus. Jesus tells him that he must be born again, really, literally, it means born from above. Jesus was talking spiritually. And and there's a a peculiar context there of Nicodemus takes it, well, how can you be born of your mother again? But it's clear in the Greek that that word is actually from above. And so it's possible that Nicodemus, uh, being a Hellenistic Jew, that was a Jew with Greek influence, was putting a twist on the Greek. Again, I encourage you to go back and you can listen to that then. This is just review uh, from last week's sermon. But um, I, I, we also went to 1 Corinthians chapter two, and the whole chapter being really key, but I just want to pick one verse as a reminder. It says, "But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised." And so this is about the Holy Spirit's involvement in helping us to perceive spiritual things. We talked about parables, of why Jesus would speak in metaphors and parables. He says, "Well, there, there are certain things that are hidden from the world." But, but these things are for you, the disciples. And so he spoke in a way which they would not understand and perceive. He had a spiritual message which at the same time would condemn the world because they were not trying to seek after God, but while also speaking life to the disciples and those who were seeking after him. And this is the Holy Spirit's job in his work, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now Nicodemus, he was the teacher of Israel. He was a Pharisee. And so Jesus has this very alarming message. He says, well, if you're the the teacher of Israel, you ought to understand these things. But they were going right over his head. And Jesus, he ends with this. This is where we ended with verse 12 last week. He says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe? How how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Very quickly, because I know we're running long. I want to start at the beginning of chapter 3 so we can get the whole context together. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, "'How can a man be born when he is old? "'He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he?' "'Jesus answered, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, "'he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. "'That which is born of flesh is flesh. "'That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. "'Do not be amazed that I said to you, "'you must be born from above. "'The wind blows where it wishes, "'and you hear the sound of it, "'but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. "'So is everyone who is born of the Spirit.' That's the work of the Holy Spirit, describing how we grow up as a man. Infant, toddler, we grow up into a mature, perfect man. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We pick up verse 13 this week. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the servant into the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is a judgment, that the light has come into the world, and that men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Verse 13, what does it mean? Jesus, it appears, is alluding to Agor's words. So, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 30. Agor, the son of Jachah, describes his lack of knowledge, and he writes in the first few verses of the chapter of Proverbs 30, who has. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? That is his name or his, excuse me, what is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. Perhaps Jesus is alluding to these words to help Nicodemus understand who he was, the son of God. And he quotes this passage, ascending and descending, saying, no one has done it except for me. Now, this title, Son of Man, is something that Jesus often calls himself. Eighty-eight times, in fact, recorded in Scripture, he calls himself the Son of Man. Not once do the disciples call him Son of Man. Interesting. They call him the Son of God, but Jesus is testifying of his humanity. During the Old Testament times, we know, and we're not going to go into all those this morning, there were times when there was the pre-incarnate Christ. That means the pre-birth Jesus was on the earth. And he is the one who is ascended but is also descended. He came and wrapped himself in flesh, John 1. He is the one who came to the earth to ultimately be lifted back up. And one day, those that know the scriptures know that Jesus did ascend and he sits now at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus associating himself with that son of, of man, the, the son's name that is not known to Agor in Proverbs 30, Jesus declares that he is that one who is descended, speaking to Nicodemus here. And he gives another uh, a comparison. He says, even as Moses, verse 14, was lifted up, he lifted up the servant in the, in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Now, I don't know how many of us remember this account Perhaps all of us do. It comes from Numbers 21. I'm just going to uh, go there quickly. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm not going to wait on you. Numbers 21, verse 4 says, They sent out from Mount Hor, this is Moses and the Israelites, by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. You ever been on a journey with your children and the children become impatient? Are we there yet? Are we there that you can hear that right? Not so long ago, I used to do that to Dad. 22 hours in the car to Wisconsin. We'd stop halfway. One time we didn't. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah, I can barely make it to the beach for six hours with four kids. No way I'm driving to Wisconsin with them. Verse 5 of Numbers 21. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Where there's no food and water, and we loathe this mis- miserable food. There's no food and water. It sounds like a teenager, right? You open the cabinet, the pantry. Mom, there's nothing to eat. I could hear my mom. I can still hear it ringing in my ears. Nothing? There's nothing in the cabinet? <laughs> no food and water, and we loathe this miserable food. So which is it? You don't like the food or there is none? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, "We have sinned. That's a good start, because we have spoken against Yahweh and you intercede with Yahweh that He may remove the serpents from us." And Moses interceded for the people. Why did God send His fiery serpents among the people? End of verse five. There's no food. Verse five of Numbers 21. There's no food and no water, and we hate the food. They're complaining. Here's here's why God sent the servants. This is what the Lord spoke to me. The people weren't satisfied with the provision that I had set up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I gave you all of the trees in the garden, Adam, except that one. Your life was so easy, Adam, you didn't even have to sweat in your gardening. There was no thorns, no but you had to reject what I gave you as provision in food as not good enough. Church, in case you haven't noticed yet, God isn't keen about complaining. But he isn't particularly favorable towards rejection either. See, the people were not pleased or satisfied with the provision that God had set up for them in the wilderness. So the snakes came. They bite a bunch of people. They're dying. might seem unfair. But the people came to Moses and they said, catch this, because it's key to understanding God's response. We have sinned. Verse 8 and 9 of Numbers 21 say, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. That's like a pole, a banner. He's going to raise it up. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. You know, snakes have this certain connotation in the Bible, don't they? Starting all the way back in the garden. The serpent that deceived Eve. Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. By the way, that's not a compliment. I had always thought it peculiar that, and perhaps you have too, that Moses was instructed by God to put a snake on the pole. Isn't that interesting? Why would a bronze serpent be the focal point in the camp? In fact, this very pole became a stumbling block and and sadly ended up being worshipped until King Hezekiah destroyed it. And You can read about that in 2 Kings 18. But it seems like everywhere snakes go, at least in the Bible, there's problems, Right? So why a snake, God? Was a cross too obvious? Hey, Moses, I want you to make an English letter T. I want you to raise it up in the middle of the camp. Crosses hadn't been invented yet, right? Why a serpent? Isn't that weird? Well, John's account of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus gives us a hint of why Jesus associates himself to that very bronze serpent. Peculiar. Again, this is what God spoke to me to help me make sense of it. He says, I made Israel look toward an image of the very thing that was killing them so that they might be saved. Do you see it takes it takes humility to admit that you've sinned. The people came to Moses and said, "We have sinned." Acts 3.19 says, Therefore repent in return so that your sins may be wiped away in order of times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's a repentance that must be involved. What happens next? How, how do you find healing? Well, look to the very thing that has brought you death to begin with. See, just as a serpent bites one and they must look at the serpent for healing, it was the first Adam who brought us death. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Actually, I'm going to turn there very quickly. If you want to turn there, that would be a good one because this is theologically crucial for us to understand. Romans chapter 5. I want this to sink in. You can see it. You can underline it yourself. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. It's talking about the law of Moses. So sin, death is spreading to all men because of the first Adam, the sins that he committed. But we didn't know it was sin because there wasn't the law yet. So, so verse, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. That's when the law came. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him. You've got the New American Standard. It's capitalized, it's pointing to Jesus. That him is Jesus. You can read the rest of the chapter for the context. Of him who was to come. I think the Amplified trend renders that last phrase this way. In reverse, the former destructive, the latter saving, or something to that effect. That there was the former Adam, which was a destructive Adam, and the latter Adam was Christ Jesus, who was a saving Adam. So even so, the son of man must be lifted up. Now, I went into this last week, and and for those that weren't here, just as a way of review, the son of man means son of Adam. In Hebrew, literally, when you see that word man, in Greek it's anthropos, but in Hebrew, when God says, uh, let us go and make man in our image, it literally is let us make Adam in our image. So there's this this cool thing that's happening in the original is that, that God is saying that Adam, there's a first Adam, which is the first man, and Jesus is associating himself as the last man, the last Adam. He's he's saying, well, there was an an Adam who was the the first of his kind, but I'm the son of man, I'm the son of Adam, the last of my kind, I'm going to usher in something new in the kingdom. And so he says to Nicodemus, you know, it's, it's man that's destroying you, not just because you're a Pharisee are you saved. Do you know that, right, Nicodemus? You, you can't save yourself. You're all being destroyed. You're, you're, you're men, no different than, than those in the camp of Israel. But I want you to humble yourself, Nicodemus, just like the people of Israel did, and say, we've sinned, I've sinned. And look to me, the last man, who's going to be raised up on a banner for your healing. just as I made Israel look toward an image of the very thing that was killing them so that they might be saved. To be healed from the poison of a serpent church, you must lift up your eyes and look to the glorified image of that very thing that brought you to death's door. Christ Jesus had to be man. He had to come in flesh. It was only because that, it is only because Jesus came that we might have the opportunity to be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son; that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. No doubt, this is one of the most famous verses, if not the most famous verse in the Bible. Oftentimes, it's used as a standalone verse, but I feel it's important for us to keep the conversation surrounding it in remembrance. Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, he comes to Jesus at the night at night for some clarification, and Jesus says out of the blue, "Hey, you aren't going to heaven." if you aren't born from above. Born what? Jesus tells him that he's, he's being too earthly-minded, and as a teacher of Israel, he ought to know better than to teach of earthly things. So Jesus, he gives him the gospel in a few concise sentences. That's why this verse is so popular, and, and for good reason. See This gospel message, the gospel means good news. The gospel begins with God. God so loved us. First, In fact, John, later in his letters, he he says we love because he first loved us. It was God's invention. Love is is God's. We're not prone to love. Post-fall of man, we're prone only to looking out for our own interest and selfishness and deceit. That's why Eve says, this man, or Adam says, look, here, and and they're all pointing and blaming, Right? This woman you gave me, Eve's like, the serpent made me do it. They're all blaming each other. They're looking out for themselves. Adam, why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. We didn't want you to notice. Immediately, self-interest became an important thing, and deceit. We're not prone to love. Only by the grace of God can we love and experience His. Well, who did God love? Well, He loved the world. He loved the whole world. The doctor, the paramedic, the pastor, even the lawyer, the celebrity, the thief, the liar, the adulterer, the murderer. It's Not just that God loves the good people, the righteous or the perfect, He, he loves the sinner too. So when John writes that, that God loved the whole world, and we need to understand that he, he didn't write it like our English Bibles make it seem, in the past tense, in the original Greek writing, it's in the aorist tense, which it doesn't have an English equivalent, but it, there's, there's no thought of time in the aorist. It, the concept isn't even considered. It, it, there's God has loved you, he's loving you now, and he will always love you. That's what it means, that God so loved the world. He, like, he loves you right now in the presence, no matter what you do, and he'll love you into the future. And what did God do to show his love? He gave his only begotten son. What does that even mean? Well, God's got one son. That's the one begotten one. Begat. That's the word. Noah begat. God had a son. He begat Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. And he gave up that only son for seeing that man would sin, that death would be the consequence thereof. He provided a way that we might have eternal life if we simply believed in him, confessed our sin. It had to be God's son to be the sacrifice for sin because God was the only man that could be perfect. and It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Now Jesus doesn't mention the death part of this exchange, does he? But it's clear looking backwards at this record that that is what he's meant when he said that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I don't know if you've ever given this much thought, but Jesus understood his assignment from early on. I I genuinely believe that. We know that he alluded to his death and resurrection later on in ministry to his to the disciples. But here at the start of his ministry, he's explaining the whole of God's salvation plan to Nicodemus. That if Nicodemus would simply believe that he was God's son, he would receive the kingdom of heaven. Destroy this temple! Do you remember, we just in the previous chapter, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. He cried out. How? How did he come to know this? Well, we can't say for sure, but, but I'd like to give you something to consider. In, in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 6, this is about 700 years before Jesus was born. Pretty amazing. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesies a glimpse into the life of Jesus. He says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me, catch this, morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. This is a messianic prophecy. The Lord awakens me, is being said about Jesus, morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. This is about Jesus. Did the father wake up Jesus morning by morning to speak and breathe the scriptures to him? Well, that's what what the word of God says 700 years before he was born. I've said this once and I've said it 100 times. I will never be able to plumb the depths of this book in some 40 minute sermon, some 50 so times a year. You've got to read it on your own. You've got to ask Father God, God, would you wake me up and reveal your mysteries to me? Jesus, Son of Man, our example, that we would grow up into a mature man, awakened by God morning by morning. My point is, if you want to grow in wisdom and favor with God, then you should go to the author himself to learn. At best, I'll re-communicate and re-gest things to you that are, are good and from God. But you can go directly to the source. Why would you want me? Man is prone to making mistakes. Lots of pastors make mistakes. I've made them. I'm sure there will be times when I make them in the future. By the Holy Spirit's help, I pray that it doesn't happen. The reality is, we know that there are teachers. That they are disguised among the lambs of God as wolves. Go to the author. Understand and know his word. How do we look like Jesus? Hmm. Spend some time with the Father. Isaiah wrote of Jesus that he, the Lord has opened my ear. Oh, beloved, I wonder if your ears are open to receive from the Father. Are you available in the mornings to be awakened to the revelation of his word? Oh, let me just sleep in, God. I'm just so tired. Oh, are you tired because you stayed up on Facebook too long? Watching that TV show too late at night, aren't you? I'm just so tired, God. Let me sleep in. Jesus is spoken of as not disobeying the Father. I want to ask you if you're obedient to all that he asks. It begins with listening to him. If you want to fulfill the words that God gives you, the tasks, the missions that God has given you, you first have to hear them from the Father, and then you have to obey them and do them. But you can't obey them and, and fulfill the mission that God has given to you if you never hear the words from Him. well, we say, well, Jesus, Jesus obeyed every... He perfectly heard the words of God because He made an effort to get out of bed and be with God. Now, I can't help but speculate that it was in moments like this with the Father that Jesus learned of God's plan for Him. Consider there are plenty of Messianic psalms, prophetic psalms that Jesus made gleaned over time that he was referring to the suffering servant. Personally, I believe that even by the age of 12, he had begun to understand his future. Jesus says, I must be about my father's business. Well, he clearly knew who his father was. And we're not talking about Joseph. That to me is, it's so incredibly challenging. 12 years old. You know, Caleb's coming up on ten. Sometimes I feel like as a father I'm not doing a good enough job and filling him with scripture and setting a good example. Showing him and revealing the love of the father. You know, you, you hear that and it sounds like a, perhaps a good, reasonable concern, doesn't it? Well, every father wants to raise their children, right? At least we should. But here's the problem as a parent and for some of you as a grandparent. The temptation is, is to want to live through our progeny. Let me explain that. I'm not, I'm not, remotely. I want to clarify that I'm not remotely suggesting that it's wrong to want our children to live a, a good life and have a better future. They ought to learn from us. And, and I believe that, that I should have more knowledge of the scriptures than my dad did at his age. And, and I could pass all of that information down to my son. That's not what I'm talking about. The problem is when we ignore our personal responsibility with God. We're so invested in our children, making them to be better than we were, that we fail to be with God ourselves. Well, let me just throw scriptures at Caleb and and memorize this, memorize that. It's going to train you up and you're going to be great, child. And we can sort of do that if we're not careful and we can back off and, and just kind of live through them because we were lazy in our own life. You know, I have a responsibility to raise my children and instill certain values in them. But I'm suggesting that perhaps the way to accomplish that may need to be tweaked. You're not going to force your children or your grandchildren to love the Lord. But you can set an example for them. What would it look like, rather, if if I woke up early in the morning and Caleb saw me every day in the word, and in prayer. And instead of just saying, memorize this child, memorize this, go to church, sing these songs, do this, learn these scriptures. He gets to come up alongside and ask me questions because he wants to be like me. Jesus spent time with his father. And was in the quiet of the morning, the quiet of the night, that he got the instructions for the days that were ahead. May our children not just spend time with us as earthly fathers and mothers, but go directly to their spiritual father. And it's in that place where they're going to grow the most. Introduce them to the father. Now, Jesus knew what God had had for him, and he refused from wavering in it. The fact that Jesus carried this burden around, not just for one day or week, you know, leading up to it and saying, you know, I'm going to die. He tells the disciples he's leading up. I'm going to, but perhaps his whole life he even knew. From a young boy, he knew what the Father had sent him to do. It's so incredible to me that he was so willing to submit to the Father's will. And in my estimation, it makes the, his ministry even more personal. I want to ask you this morning if you're submitted to the Father. Are you willing to do whatever he asks you to do? Nicodemus, Jesus tells him that he can't get to heaven. Or he tells him how he can get to heaven. He says, believe that I am the provision that the Father sent and you will receive eternal life. He goes on to say that Jesus is speaking here. He says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is not judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now this comes full circle and I'm going to try and wrap up here. We'll save that for another week, but the image of the fiery serpents in the wilderness on the back of your mind, this verse 17 perhaps will make more sense and we have to see that that Jesus isn't coming to condemn. The, the, The snakes were already there biting. He was coming to bring healing. And there's good and there's bad with that. Some people look to Jesus and they say, oh, well, he's non-judgmental. You know, he's just love. And they can really attach themselves to it and identify with the words of Christ. And even people that don't believe with, you know, Jesus is the son of God, they say, well, he's a good man. He's kind of a good role model. And they they hang on to that. They hang on to the goodness and compassion and the mercy. But what they fail to see is that Jesus spoke very clearly that the sin has already been judged. doesn't mean that you're off the hook because you like the words of Jesus. He says, the sins have already been judged. Yes, Jesus came solely for the purpose of forgiveness. He came with healings in his wings. The grace of Christ should not be overlooked. They cry out, though, don't judge me, lest you be judged. They see Jesus as non judgmental, but he taught that if you don't believe in the name of the begotten, then you've been judged already. That's where verse 19 comes in. explains that the light shines into the darkness. It has this dividing function. Some flee from the light because, because they can't, uh, they, they love the darkness and the, the, the light will expose their wicked deeds. You ever been in a house with cockroaches and you turned on a light switch? I have. It's terrible. I'll tell an embarrassing story. Brittany's cringing already. She's nodding her head no. Don't do it. Don't do it we went to visit some family in Florida. Her grandmother was not in good health, and she had moved in. Her and her husband had moved in with her daughter, and the trailer that they had in um, outside Orlando had been unoccupied for quite a long time, and in Florida, they've got these horrendous bugs called palmetto, palmetto beetles. Is that right? They're, they're the size of a finger, and, and they're, <laughs> they're they're horrendous creatures. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is, <laughs> this is my experience with Florida. So Um, We were recently wed and we went back to stay in their their place that they hadn't been in for a long time. And apparently some bugs had decided to take up some residence in their house. (laughs) So you walk in and you turn on a light. (laughs) You go in the bathroom, you turn on a light. (laughs) Everywhere. This is what the light of Christ will do with the world. I don't know if it sounds familiar to anyone but there are those that would rather continue on in their sin than to look to Jesus for healing. The light shines and exposes their wickedness and their dirty deeds and they say, "We got to get out of here and hide." So they scatter. Spiritually speaking, that's what people are doing. They, you know, they they they've been bit by a snake, but they refuse to look at the bronze serpent. Some people don't even know they've been bit and they're dying. They're bleeding out. Their blood's getting coagulated. They're so sick they can't even tell. But Jesus came for those that would humble themselves and to cry out. We're sinners. serpent in the garden led mankind into rebellion against his creator, and it became a symbol of deception and shame. Just like Israel, that serpent of old, he's bitten our heels. He's poisoned our hearts, but thanks be to God for that seed of the woman that has been raised up on high. He was the promised seed of the woman who has been raised up like the bronze serpent. We all need to look to Jesus on the cross. Raise up your eyes and stare with hope at the source of your healing. As the source of your healing, which is Christ, this man, Jesus.